Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, moderator of today's forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we invite you to visit us in person. Details about upcoming forums can be found online at www.ewestminster.org. It's a pleasure to welcome to the forum today the second speaker in our fall series on media ethics. Gary Gilson spent 30 years as a journalist working for the Minneapolis Star, Twin Cities Public Television, and WCCO-TV, as well as with magazine shows and documentaries. His work in New York and Los Angeles earned five Emmy Awards. A graduate of Dartmouth College and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, he has taught widely from Columbia and Yale to McAllister and St. Thomas. Since 1992, Mr. Gilson has been the executive director of the Minnesota News Council. The mission of the News Council is to hear and resolve complaints from the public about news coverage, thereby helping to ensure trustworthy media and a healthy democracy. Mr. Gilson continues the Westminster Town Hall Forum Fall Series with a discussion of what interests dictate the stories that make headlines and how individuals can make news organizations accountable for their reporting. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Gary Gilson. Thank you very much. I am really delighted to be here, and I want to tell you in a couple of moments from now why. Uh, but first of all, let me tell you about Harrison Salisbury, one of the greatest reporters in history who came from Minneapolis, won a Pulitzer Prize, worked for the New York Times, and grew up right near where the farmer's market stands today. The only non-Jewish family in that neighborhood. And his sister Janet told me after Harrison Salisbury died that she thinks that that was something that influenced him greatly because it enabled him to understand what it meant to be different from other kinds of people and it generated a lot of curiosity in him. And Harrison Salisbury said, it's amazing what you can find out if you just keep asking questions. The media needs to question authority, and the public needs to question the media. That's a theme I want to develop with you today. Uh, when I was a rookie reporter at the Minneapolis Star, the city editor was a man named Lee Canning. He later became a news executive and a business exec executive for the Coles Media Company. And now he's on the board of directors of the Minnesota News Council. And I can remember sitting in that newsroom day after day, uh, and a reporter would write a story and hand it into the city desk. And inevitably, Canning would stand up after reading a few lines and hold it up and scream across the newsroom, Gilson? Do we know this? Those are the four most important words in journalism. Uh, Canning was performing the vital function of the gatekeeper. He was protecting the public from bad information. He was protecting the sources and subjects of the stories from inaccuracy and unfairness. He was protecting the reporter's career and protecting the newspaper from embarrassment, error, and lawsuits. 
and protecting the best approximation of the truth that the newspaper could manage to approach that day. Uh, as we've seen, the gatekeeper function has suffered badly in the news business recently. If the public doesn't demand better, it won't get better, and we'll see the further decline of public trust in the news media. And that would be a disaster, and that's the main thing I want to talk with you about today. Uh, but first, I want to say just a few words about why I am so uh, thrilled to be here. Uh, I have had some thrilling experiences in my career, among them broadcasting an NCAA basketball playoff game at Madison Square Garden, running on a Marine Corps track team at the Penn Relays in Philadelphia in front of 55,000 people, uh, making a documentary about Minnesota women who served as nurses in the Vietnam War and seeing that program have a hand in helping them get a statue erected to the memory of women at the Vietnam Memorial, uh, helping train the first wave of people of color to go into the television news business, and later, seven years later, having one of those students hire me to work for her in Los Angeles. And once attending a party at a friend's place on Fifth Avenue, in Manhattan and dancing with Shirley MacLaine. Uh, those were really genuine thrills, but to have this opportunity to be on this platform, the same one that for so many years was graced by the wisdom and strength and compassion of Don Meisel, that is a thrill, and I'm so happy that Don is here today. Thanks for being here, Don. Uh, I also attended almost every one of these forums for many years, and I learned a lot from them, and I hope that you and I will learn some valuable things from each other today. Uh, people talk about bias in the media. The main bias in the media is a bias in favor of a big story. Every reporter and editor wants one every day. Well, one day I'm sitting at the news council and the phone rings, it's a, an insurance company executive, and he said, I'm beside myself, I don't know what to do. Um, a television crew was just here from a local station, asked me to give an interview, and I did. And uh, the reporter sat down, the camera rolled, and the first question was, how can you throw a woman out of a hospital within 24 hours of her delivering a child? And I said, we don't do that. Our policy is a minimum of 48 hours, and if the doctor says she needs more, then we cover more. And the reporter turned to the cameraman and said, cut, we're out of here. I said to him, uh, here's what I think you should do. Write a letter to the general manager of the television station and copy the news director and say, this is an experience I just had with your representative. What's your standard? See, you don't call him an idiot, because that's a lose-lose. You approach it the way I just suggested. There's no management that won't give you a conversation on that. Um, Ann Barkalou, who's here today, who was a member of the News Council and was chairman of our board until last year, uh, when she was at hearings, and we would have a hearing on a complaint, would always say to the news uh, uh, outlet, what is your standard? That's what people want to know. And if they don't live up to their standard, they should be accountable for it. We'll talk more about that. Uh, too often these days, the standard is a story's promotability. How can a news outlet hype a story to make it irresistible for you to pick up the paper or tune in a newscast? Now here's an insight into what's promotable. You may be familiar with a syndicated newspaper columnist named William Raspberry. He's in more than 150 newspapers, he's been in the Pioneer Press, works out of Washington, D.C. I heard him say this, I think it was on the National Press Club broadcast. 
He said, uh, I love to get out of Washington, D.C. and go to one of those cities where the newspaper publishes my column and write from a dateline that is different from the Beltway. Uh, for example, Tallahassee, Florida. And he said, when I know I'm going, I let the editor know I'm coming and I'm going to be looking for a story. And the editor always says, Bill, would you please spend a few minutes with our young people? All of them would like to be like you. They'd all like to be a syndicated columnist someday. And he said, of course, I say yes. But I tell the editor, I get to ask the first question. And whatever town I'm in, I ask the same question. And whatever town I'm in, I get the same answer. The question is, what works in your town? And the answer is always dead silence. He said, it is not that the editors and reporters don't know what's working in their town. It is that their mandate as journalists and their training is to seek out and report conflict. Now, the irony is that the things that are working are usually the result of resolved conflicts. Uh, but Raspberry said that the great opportunity and challenge for American journalism is to find out what works so people can emulate it. That's one point of view. Uh, in the newly misshapen media world, with its ever-increasing number of outlets and its 24-hour-a-day glut of so-called news, conflict is the ever-cheapening currency. Now I want to tell you a good story. I entitle it The TV Reporter and the Vigilant Mother. There was a woman whose child was deathly ill in a hospital here in town, and the mother never left. She sat in a chair next to the kid's bed. She would nod off occasionally, but she was there. And one time when she was nodding off, something alarmed her. It was a movement of the nurse's arm to give the kid a hypodermic. And the mother woke up and grabbed the nurse's arm and pulled it away and said, don't give my kid that shot. And the nurse was a bit flustered and they went outside and talked it over and the mother said, there's too much fluid in that syringe. And the nurse said, don't be silly, I measured it. And they found out that if the nurse had given the kid the shot, the kid would have died instantly. It had 10 times the prescribed strength. As a result of that story, which the hospital tried to keep off the air, and today is probably happy that it went on the air, as a result of that, nurses no longer measure out the shots. The pharmacy sends them up pre-measured. See, the pharmacy used to send it in bulk, and the nurse would measure it out from the bulk. Now it's sent up after being double-checked at the pharmacy, and then the nurse, as a matter of policy, double-checks it, and that's better for you and for the hospital and for everybody. And that's because journalists did their job. That's what they're supposed to do. Uh, the ideal of public service journalism has taken a beating in the age of conglomerate ownership. Too much of the news is thin soup. Some of it's irresponsible, like reports that hype a cure for cancer, tune in at 10. Uh, there is a name that critics give those kinds of stories. They call them false hope stories. But they do build the persona of the news anchor who is the front person for the story. Uh, there's a journalism instructor at the University of Minnesota named Gary Schweitzer who has a vast amount of experience as a healthcare reporter in television. And he has contracted with KMSP, the Fox station here, uh, to have them do extended healthcare stories, not false cure, false hope stories, 
Uh, and the, the stories start out with research done by University of Minnesota students. That is a qualitative improvement in healthcare reporting, and I hope it's a model for others to emulate. Um, those reports have the quality that is lacking in most television news on any subject context. Now, I had my own false hope story. Uh, when I was getting ready to graduate from Columbia Journalism, uh, I went down to NBC News for what's called an informational interview. Of course, I hoped that they would be uh, seduced into hiring me. And the man who interviewed me was a wonderful guy. First of all, he asked me what I hoped to do in my life, he, and he listened. And when I finished, he said, you know, we might hire you at NBC News someday, but not until you work five years for a newspaper. That's because if you go to work at a television station, it's dangerous for you and the television station and the public. There's not enough levels of supervision in television to vet your story. In the newspaper business, one, two, three, four, five sets of eyes may see your story before it sees the light of day. And if you get that kind of seasoning, when you come to us, we'll feel protected, and you'll be protected, and the public will be protected. Well, it's not that way anymore. Kids go right out of college into television. It is not unheard of for a kid to be at the University of Minnesota, get work as an intern uh, at a television station here, uh, and after six months, get a job as an associate producer on the morning news, and six months later be the producer of the morning news, and six months later be producing the five o'clock news, and a year and a half later be the executive producer of the news, never having covered a news story. Because what it's about is not journalism, it's about packaging and merchandising. And these kids are smart, and they're smart enough to know when they walk through the door what the boss wants. Uh, Fred Friendly, the former president of CBS News, who was the Edward R. Murrow Professor of Journalism at Columbia, said that the most important thing for journalists to do today is to go beyond reporting and explain the news. He said, the greatest opportunity and challenge that reporters have is to explain the news, give it context and perspective, explain what's at stake and what may factor into likely outcomes in the situation. Now, explaining the news also means exposing the spin that various spokespersons in a story try to place on the facts. News outlets should expose lies and half-truths. The Washington Post, after Pre Vice President Cheney appeared on Meet the Press several months ago, ran a story on page one that was startling. The headline said, here are the lies Cheney told on Meet the Press. A news story. Now that's an aberration today. The Post and the New York Times have both publicly acknowledged and apologized for their timidity in covering or not covering the run-up to the war in Iraq. Most news outlets in this country, print and broadcast, were more interested in designing patriotic logos and choosing martial music to accompany their news reports than they were in questioning authority. The idea that the real patriotic duty of a journalist is skepticism. Uh, lost its power amid the rush of news outlets to align themselves with the interests of the administration in Washington. Now, one of the worst things about the flow of news today is that no matter what your political beliefs are, you can find a news outlet to reinforce them. That's different from what it used to be. Another harmful thing is that the companies that own most of the major broadcast news outlets are run by people 
for whom the news departments are just another potential profit center. Uh, that's not the way William Paley of CBS, David Sarnoff of NBC, and Leonard Goldenson of ABC saw their role as uh, chairman and CEOs of those companies that had news divisions. Those pioneers were not journalists, but they protected the news division's pursuit of public service journalism as a sacred mission. Uh, and the news divisions were the jewels in their corporate crown. Now, think about Lawrence Tisch, the, Holly, the uh, 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 tobacco and, uh, and hotel mogul. He bought CBS. The first thing he did was to take the president of CBS News to Europe to tour all the cities where CBS News had bureaus that had distinguished themselves for decades in reporting and interpreting the news from Europe. And Tish said, what do we need these for? Let CNN cover the world. And they shut most of them down. That's a terrible loss for this country. Uh, CNN doesn't cover the world as well as CBS did, or NBC did. Uh, the profit motive has affected the quality of news, not only in broadcast, but also in print. When John Cole Sr. Uh, was alive and owned that company uh, down the block, uh, I have been told he was satisfied with a return on investment of 5 to 6% a year. Now it is common for the chains that own newspapers to demand a 23 to 30% return on, on investment. Uh, and that squeezes the budgets of newsrooms where the gathering of news takes place. Uh, common for most broadcast stations to make more than 30% return on investment. Fred Friendly called having a television license a license to print money. Uh, somewhere in our history, after the Congress passed the Communications Act of 1934, which said that broadcasting should operate in the public interest, convenience, and necessity, uh, the public forgot, if it ever did know, that the public owns the airwaves. Uh, local licensees pay absolutely nothing for their license. Yet the public stands mute as broadcasters cover election campaigns, the most important public event we have. Uh, with less than a lick and a promise at the issues. Uh, and stations collect huge fees for the commercials that politicians buy. Why shouldn't television stations be required as a quid pro quo for having that free license to use more of the revenue from TV political commercials to support the kind of reporting on politics that explains what the issues are and where the candidates stand on them? In other words, whose news is it? Does the news belong to the people who gather, process, and deliver it, or does it belong to the people who consume it? Uh, so far in this country, we have not seen an advocate for consumers of news as effective as Ralph Nader has been as a, an advocate of people who buy cars. Um, there are some strong voices, but as yet no grassroots campaign that produces results. Now, Bill Moyers, uh, is a great conscience for the media, but he's been a working reporter and not in the kind of position that Ralph Nader has occupied. Um, until the public becomes motivated to demand a different kind of journalism, we'll get more of the same. Occasionally great stories that truly do serve the public interest, but more and more infotainment. I believe every child should begin to learn by the fifth or sixth grade how to read a newspaper and evaluate a newscast critically. How to decide if they can trust the news story. 
uh, how to size up the sources, uh, whether a news outlet is overusing anonymous sources, whether a story is balanced. Underneath all that, they need to understand what the role of journalism is in a democracy. It's not merely to titillate, agitate, or entertain. It's to inform people so they can make intelligent decisions about their lives. One of the nation's most astute observers in this field is a woman named Denny Elliott. She's been a journalist. She's coached journalists on ethics, and she teaches now at the University of Southern Florida. Uh, here's a quote from Denny Elliott. I love it. Journalism is the single most important institution in a democracy, more important than the Supreme Court, more important than the state university, the legislature, the police department, the pro sports franchise, major businesses, and religious organizations. Why? Because we cannot trust any one of them to audit its own behavior and file its own final report. You know the expression, trust your mother, but cut the cards. The role of journalism is to be the watchdog of all those institutions. Now, the news business is an institution, and it's ironic and frustrating to watch the news business resist accountability itself. This is the most important thing that you can do as a member of the public to help journalists to do a better job and hold them accountable. You help a restaurant that you patronize when you point out to the owner that the food you were just served was rotten. Uh, the owner wants to know that uh, because it's a distant early warning or maybe an intimate warning that uh, he could lose the business if not just the customer. Um, the smart business owner re regards that complaint as a gift. The business owner who stonewalls is likely to lose business. The owner who is open to complaint and cheerfully makes things right will retain the customer and get the benefit of free advertising from the bountiful word of mouth about how friendly and fair the business was to me. In the news business, it's often been a different story. Too often, news people who feel the complaint don't want to hear it. And regardless of what the complaint may be about, they wind up accusing the caller of trying to undermine the First Amendment. There's a woman named Geneva Overholzer who was the executive editor of the Des Moines Register. She later was the ombudsman for the Washington Post. Now she teaches at the University of Missouri Journalism School in their Washington, D.C. division. She came here several years ago uh, over at the Coles Auditorium and the uh, Humphrey Institute and told an audience about this size, mostly journalists, uh, about the First Amendment and freedom of the press and how they were uh, using it and they were all nodding and then she dropped a bomb. She said, freedom of the press doesn't belong to you journalists. I thought their collective jaw was going to break the floor. She said, it belongs to the people who created it, the public. And if you don't use the freedom the public gave you responsibly, the public could take it away from you. Now that sounded a little bit like hyperbole, but that was before 9-11. Several months later, 9-11 happens, and within a week there's a public opinion survey. And of course the uh, administration in Washington uh, did everything it could to, uh, could to intimidate journalists not to ask tough questions. And they took a survey of the public and about 87% of the people said that the government should place restraints upon the press. Does that tell you something about the inadequacy of education in the grammar school where kids are not learning what the role of the press is, that the press is my friend and protects me against authority? We've got a big job to do.
Geneva talks about arrogance. Here's an example of arrogance. A Twin Cities business operator was the subject of a story in the New York Times and thought it was unfair and inaccurate and wrote a letter to the New York Times and the Times refused to publish it. And so they called up and said, why aren't you publishing this letter? And the person on the editorial page, which gets the letters to the editor, not the news department, but the editorial page, said, we stand by our story. That's one of the most uh, common things that you hear from some news people. And that is the pinnacle of arrogance because the editorial pages had absolutely nothing to do with the preparation of the news story. There is and should be a firewall between news and editorial. What business did that person have defending a story that the editorial page had nothing to do with uh, producing. Uh, for all the greatness of the New York Times, until the recent Jason Blair scandal, the paper resisted hiring an ombudsman to handle complaints and critique its journalism. Actually, we shouldn't call it the Jason Blair scandal. Uh, he was a disturbed, immoral, or amoral person. Uh, the scandal is that his work got published. Editors could have prevented that, uh, but they didn't do their jobs. They are the gatekeepers who fell asleep, just as the ones at USA Today fell asleep throughout Jack Kelly's long and illustrious career. Uh, just as the Times and the Washington Post editors did in their coverage of the run-up to the war in Iraq. Uh, American journalists did not ask tough questions that would have held the administration's feet to the fire about the justification for going to war. American journalists have failed America. And they've done so before, no matter if the administration is Republican or Democratic. All administrations lie some of the time. There's a great book I recommend to you on the history of war correspondence by Philip Knightley, K-N-I-G-H-T-L-E-Y, called The First Casualty. It comes from the expression, in war, the first casualty is truth. That is why the quality of reporting today is so crucial. We live in fear today of enemies unseen who do not rattle rhetorical sabers but use real sabers to cut off heads. Enemies who explode themselves to kill others. And solid, gutsy reporting helps not only the public but also political leaders who have to face up to the threats of the changing world. And so critiques of the performance of the press are a vital activity in our society. There aren't enough of them. And most of them do not get read, heard, or seen by the mass of people. News organizations, with few exceptions, shy away from criticizing the media. It makes them feel too vulnerable. Leads the way in Minnesota by running a little squib on page 2A next to the corrections every day of the year. It says, if we can't resolve your complaint, we participate in the Minnesota News Council. And here's the News Council's phone number and its email address. How can you be a reader? of the Pioneer Press and not be reassured that that newspaper is open to your inquiry and complaint. That's what builds trust. The uh, last thing I want to say before we go to the questions is to give you an example of the kind of conversation that happens at the News Council hearings. The assistant managing editor of the Duluth News Tribune, a man named Craig Jamoulis, who's now moved on elsewhere, was a member of the News Council. And one day there was a discussion about uh, how a newspaper um, publishes a story in which a, uh, a person who's been accused of doing something bad has an opportunity to defend himself or herself. And uh, everybody agreed that uh, in today's society, the person who's accused of something bad has virtually an absolute right 
to be, defend himself or herself in the first day's story. If you have to wait till the second day, you're going to be playing catch-up ball for the rest of your life. As my father said when we grew up in New England, lots of luck to you and the Red Sox. Anyway, Jamulis said in Duluth at the News Tribune, we have a higher standard. Everybody in the room whipped around and said, what is it? See, people really care. And he said, we found out from readership surveys that the public is too lazy, generally speaking, to go from page one in a story to jump to page eight. So we systematically put the defense against that accusation on page one, where, where the accusation is so that we can avoid a structural imbalance in the story. Now, what person in the public or in the news business hearing Craig say that would not say, you know, that's worth considering as a policy at our paper. So what the News Council does is generate a conversation in public to get people thinking. And of course, my goal and the News Council's goal is to get you thinking and acting and asserting yourselves more in demanding higher standards. There are many other things to talk about. I'm sure that your questions will provoke it, but it's a privilege for me to be able to talk with you today, and I thank you very much. Thank you, Gary Gilson. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, the moderator of today's forum. Our guest is Gary Gilson, who has just spoken to us about Who's News, a look at how the news is shaped and how individuals can make news organizations accountable for their reporting. While ushers collect questions from our audience at Westminster, we'd like to remind our Minnesota public radio listeners that forums are free and open to the public. For information about upcoming forums, you can visit us online at www.ewestminster.org. We also invite you to visit the Minneapolis Public Library's website where you can link to a recommended reading list on today's topic. The Town Hall Forum would like to extend its gratitude to our sponsors, the General Mills, Baker, and Nash Foundations, the Rake Magazine, and Skyway News. We thank also the many generous individuals who support our mission to promote public discussion of the leading ethical questions of our time. Gary Gilson, if you will return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions from the audience. Speaking of standing by our story, can you comment on CBS and Dan Rather and the recent flap over the President's service in the National Guard, and particularly the ownership of CBS of Viacom and the connection between Viacom and Republican parties, as reported in the media? Uh, this is a disaster, uh, and it's directly related to what I was talking about about editors not doing their job. Now, if you look at the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather, you'll notice that he's listed at the end of the program as managing editor. Um, that's a very important role. So he's as much of an editor as the producer and the executive producer of that program. In their rush to get a scoop, um, that's what I call the bias in favor of a big story, um, they ignored their standards. And as a result, it's not only embarrassing, but it, I think in many ways it's harmful to the political process. Um, and uh, it, it just gives a bad name to, to that network news department and it raises suspicion about all network news departments. Um, Dan Rather was a great reporter. And it's astounding to me that given the obvious task of making sure those documents were real, he didn't do it. No matter what number of producers were behind him, he didn't do it. 
Um, I don't know about any connection with Viacom and the Republican Party, but I can tell you that um, this is part of a pattern of editors, for some reason, not doing what they were trained to do. And if they don't wake up as a result of this, the way editors woke up after Jason Blair, uh, then we're in for a, a really rocky road. You referred to a firewall between the editorial offices and the news offices. Is it realistic to think editorial page content does not influence news reporting? I think it's absolutely realistic. Look at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I would submit that the stories on page one of the Wall Street Journal represent the best in American journalism for many, many, many decades. And I think they're totally uninfluenced by the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, which looks like it was written on another planet. Uh, and uh, uh, there may be some newspapers where there, the firewall doesn't exist, but I think for the most part, uh, it does exist. I think if you look at the Minneapolis paper, for example, I know a lot of people who can't stand the Minneapolis paper because they don't like its editorials. Uh, but I keep asking people to present evidence from published news stories of where there is bias. Um, uh, we can talk about bias and objectivity and so forth if people want to know about it, but uh, I, don't, uh, I don't get these examples submitted. And I think it would be very good if people could come up with evidence so that the news organization could be held accountable and they could remedy their ways. Uh, you mentioned the Star Tribune and uh, ethics around that paper are raised by the question uh, related to the Luis Palau evangelistic crusade hosted recently on the state capitol grounds in St. Paul. The Star Tribune was a sponsor, a financial sponsor of the evangelistic crusade. They received advertising revenue from the crusade and then they proceeded to report on it. Uh, any comments on the ethics and intertwining and all of that? Nobody needs me to criticize the Minneapolis Star Tribune on that. There was a, an uproar in the newsroom about this. Uh, there were many reporters uh, who were made uncomfortable by this sponsorship of the Palau event by the newspaper. Uh, it made me think of the time when the reporters at the Minneapolis Star and Tribune took out an ad objecting to the company's um, involvement in the development of the Hubert Humphrey Metrodome. Uh, and you know, that's an area of town where, where the Coles family owned uh, real estate. And the reporter's point of view was that it made it impossible for them to be seen as independent and to have their journalism regarded with any respect if the publisher was going to be involved in a news story that way. Um, and I see that that's a parallel to this situation. What can be done to se separate more effectively news from entertainment and editorializing? Uh, I think education. Uh, of children and, and uh, college students and people like the ones here in this audience who have to assert themselves. Um, you know, people in the broadcast business always say, uh, we don't need any outside accountability. People can always turn the dial if they don't want us. But there's such sameness in the spectrum today uh, that uh, if you turn the dial, you're not likely to find a lot different. Uh, regardless of what anybody thinks about Rush Limbaugh, the man is a genius entertainer. And every station in America, no matter how small or large the city, wants its own Rush Limbaugh. Well, there's only one. But everybody's trying to imitate it. You don't find um, much uh, diversity of, of political opinion on talk shows around the country. Um, uh, but I think that if I don't see any hope in changing the direction, because this is where the public's responsibility comes in. 
You know, when Geraldo Rivera had his television show uh, and, and, and uh, there were fistfights on the set during the program, it's not just his family that was watching. Millions of people would watch that stuff and Jerry Springer and so forth and so on. And if there aren't enough people who are thoughtful to insist upon a, a different approach and, and try to in, uh, in, involve themselves in conversations with media owners, then you're going to get more and more of the same. But if you let people know what you want and approach them in a way that sh and congratulate them when they do good stuff and hold them accountable when they do bad stuff, but always do it respectfully, not to coddle them. But when I say respectfully, I mean because news people are more defensive than the rest of us. And you don't want to trigger that. Remembering that you're now live on Minnesota Public Radio, does your critique of the media apply as well to public radio and television? Please elaborate. Uh, I think public broadcasting is one of the treasures of the country. I spent 75% of my career in public broadcasting. Um, there are very few stations in the country in television that have done locally what Channel 2 did and still does with Almanac and what it did with Newsnight and the program I worked on there uh, years ago, Nighttime's Magazine. Most television stations don't have the money. Producing television well is extremely expensive. Um, so the Twin Cities is fortunate to have had that, but we, we don't see that now. We have Almanac, but you don't have a local news program or a local interview program, and we should have that. Uh, corporations should come forward and sponsor that sort of thing. We ought to have our own local version of the Charlie Rose Show. There are interesting people who live in the Twin Cities. Uh, now, as far as radio is concerned, I think that Minnesota Public Radio has made so many great hires in the last few years that the product, while it was good to begin with, is getting better and better. Uh, I did detect a tendency years ago for Minnesota Public Radio to be timid about breaking stories. They were great on interpreting and elaborating on stories that other people broke. And now I think there's more of a, an appetite for that. Are there agreed upon industry standards nationwide or statewide for the media? And if so, what are they? If not, why not? There are codes like the Society of Professional Journalists Code, the Radio Television News Directors Association Code, the Associated Press Managing Editors Code, and a couple of more. Uh, none of them have any enforcement to them. Um, they are just suggestions. If you ask an editor at a newspaper, what do you think of the SPJ code? Um, let me recite it for you in brief. Uh, be as truthful and accurate as possible. Uh, maintain your independence, meaning don't be in the pocket of anybody you're covering. Um, minimize harm, especially to innocent people. And um, be accountable. Uh, it has subcategories. For example, a category on the uses of deception. Is it okay to use a hidden camera? Well, the SPJ code says it's okay to use a hidden camera if, number one, it's the only way to get the story. Well, that's number two. Number one is if it involves the public health and safety. Number two is if it's the only way to get the story. And there are three or four or five more. And then the last one says, if you use deception, the short word for that is lying. If you use deception, then you owe it to your audience to explain why you did that. Now, a lot of television stations will use, will use a hidden camera, and they'll do all that stuff. But they never go to get around to telling people why it was necessary to do that. In Chicago, the television stations have trained the audience to demand hidden cameras all the time. So there's a tremendous abuse of that. Now, unfortunately, these codes are just suggestions. And you ask a newspaper editor, uh, do you live up to that code? And they'll say, well, we, we pick and choose the parts we like. 
Uh, and, and the lawyers for media companies tell their newsrooms, for goodness sake, don't have a written code of ethics. Because if you do, some plaintiff's attorney will send an agent into the newsroom, rip it off the wall, and then argue in front of a jury in a libel case. They may not have broken the libel law, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, but look what they did. They violated their own code of ethics, emptied their pockets. And that is common around the country from the lawyers to media groups. Uh, I've got to tell you that there was a guy who just retired from the Baltimore Sun. He was an editor in Hartford and, uh, and I think Kansas City. Um, and he said, and I thought the lawyer for the Associated Press was going to have a heart attack. He said, we need a strict written code of ethics because we're constantly hiring young people and we throw them into the street the first day they arrive to cover a story. And uh, we need to inculcate them with our standards and traditions and ethics. Otherwise, there's going to be all kinds of problems. And he said, this is where the heart attack came in. He said, if we don't live up to our own written code of ethics, we deserve to be sued. Now that's called embracing accountability. And that would be a great model for everybody, whether it's the news business or the restaurant business. Why does the media have such a short attention span? For instance, at one time, three US soldiers killed in Iraq would have been a front page headline. Now it's found on page six or eight tucked away. What determines the length of the play of a, any given story? Uh, I think that um, because of the situation in Iraq, and it's not traditional combat, that those stories tend to get boring to the people who process them. Um, they're always looking for new sensations, um, but when they get hold of a sensation, you better believe they don't let it go. On the two nights that Larry King and Geraldo Rivera did not cover the O.J. Simpson case, their ratings went into the sewer. Uh, and so they learned that lesson. So you, what happens, I don't know if you know this, but um, uh, at any given time when there's not a major news story, hardly anybody in America watches the all-news cable channels. When there is a major news story, a lot of people watch. And when there's a story that may not be major, but that they can promote into making you think that it's major, they do that. And they give those stories legs. And I could name a lot of them. Shark Attacks, Gary Condit, John, John, uh, John, what's her name, John Benet Ramsey, uh, JFK Jr., Princess Di. You go down the list. They won't let go of those stories. And so they're training the audience and, and building an appetite. Uh, with the consolidation, the corporate consolidation of the news industry and media, has the reporter's choice of stories to be covered been reduced, or somehow affected? I think that the, if the reporter ever had a choice, uh, it's been reduced uh, because everybody's trying to keep up with everybody else. And there becomes a formula. It's interesting. You probably have noticed if you switch from one channel to another on local news, um, the commercial comes on at the same time on every station, the sports comes on at the same time, and generally speaking, the three or four major stories are done in the same order. And it's not because there's a conspiracy. It's because that's the way they've been trained to evaluate the news. Now, the great thing about public television, if you ever uh, knew anybody who worked in it, was you not only had a tremendous uh, breadth of choice of subject matter, but a tremendous amount of airtime, relatively speaking, uh, and a great freedom in the style in which you wanted to present the story. It doesn't exist in commercial broadcasting, and commercial broadcasting is pretty formulaic. Question following up on that, a 
listener here in the audience says, I heard the head of the journalism school at Northwestern University say, we don't report much foreign news because it doesn't sell newspapers. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I think, uh, you know, they tested college students a few years ago, and uh, one of the questions that really befuddled them was, where is California? Uh, so, you know, what are we going to say about foreign countries? Uh, when uh, when uh, Channel 4 and other stations used to do a little summary of international news on the 10 o'clock news, they would have a little cube behind the anchor people, and it would they'd do six seconds on Bosnia, and the cube would flip to the other angle, and they'd do six seconds on something else, and then say, and that was it. They don't even bother with that anymore. And I think it's because cable news has made it unnecessary for them to do it. So there's no commitment to explaining to people what's at stake anywhere in the world. Several questions about the role of media and politics, particularly in this election season. Do you have an opinion on the vast amount of time and resources spent in the media on election campaigning? A vast amount of time. Well, it's what's mostly called horse race reporting. There's very little uh, analysis of issues. Um, it's, it's inadequate. Um, and there's not enough, you know, they used to have a thing called the Republican Truth Squad that would follow Democratic candidates around and, and uh, supposedly expose their lies. Well, Pat Kessler at Channel 4 is a kind of a journalistic truth squad. There have been others who look at TV commercials and analyze them and say, this is true, this isn't, blah, 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 blah. And they're not taking sides. They're just being journalistic about it. Uh, but I, I don't see um, a, a tremendous value in the kind of reporting that is done. And if they're spending a lot of money, a lot of it is wasted. I think the coverage of Howard Dean's scream is one of the most shameful chapters in modern American journalism, completely out of context. Uh, and I heard him give a speech to the Gannett executive several weeks later in Washington, and he was brilliant, regardless of whether you like his politics. The man was coherent, and he, was, he had energy, and he had commitment to the future of America. None of that came through in, in the coverage of him. Tonight is the first of three scheduled presidential debates, and I wonder if you might comment on this listener asks, the role of the media in setting up those debates and then interpreting them to people like us afterwards. I don't think the media have much to do about setting up those debates. The candidates are terrified that they're going to have an embarrassing moment, so they make ground rules to prevent that from happening. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the media just make our conduits for this. Uh, I always thought that the greatest way to do a political debate was to invite the candidates to the television studio and tell them to get there at 6 o'clock. Uh, and they think they're going to go on the air at 6. But really, when you get there, you tell them, oh, it's not going to be until 7. And so they're sitting, the two of them, in a studio, and they don't know that the camera is running. <laughs> and the, of course, they're silent because they're gathering themselves and they don't want to reveal anything. But afterward, you know, you're with somebody for a few minutes, you've got to talk to them. And then they would talk to each other. It's being videotaped and they don't know it. And they would talk to each other and you would learn a lot about who has leadership ability, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that will never happen. But I'll tell you something that did happen when I worked at public television in New York. We had four guys running for mayor. And we said, let's not do one of those so-called debates where the two guys are up there and they recite what they thought of when they were shaving in the morning. You know, that pap. Uh, and uh, what we did was we had one candidate at a time come out on a platform, interviewed by four tough reporters who uh, agreed not to uh, let their own egos get in the way, but to cooperate with each other on the follow-up questions. They did that for 20 minutes. Then 
a group of citizens in the audience like this had 20 minutes to ask this guy questions. And then when it was over, the reporters had another shot at evaluating his answers. Then the next guy came out to run for mayor, uh, who was running for mayor. And we did it. I thought it was a terrific format, and it really helped voters find out. But politicians are too timid for that. And it's just like magazines. You see Al Pacino's picture on the front cover of a magazine, you think that's the editor's decision? No way. That's Al Pacino's agent's decision. Otherwise, Al doesn't give the interview. I get the cover or I walk. Would you like to see TV and radio required to donate a given amount of time for candidates in an election process? Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, a question about your own sources for the news. You referred to the Wall Street Journal. Where do you turn for good reporting on international news, on local media, et cetera? This person uh, wants you to name names. Yeah, uh, public radio um, is very big. The New York Times uh, and the Minneapolis paper early in the morning, the Pioneer Press later in the morning, uh, The Economist magazine, um, and some other publications. Um, my great regret is that I uh, did not make the time to look at Bill Moyer's series on Friday nights now. Um, you know, life takes over. Um, but those are the main sources. We are just about out of time. One last comment to our listening audience and the audience here at Westminster about what an individual can do to hold news media accountable. Yeah, uh, don't call at 10.36 p.m. and tell them they're a bunch of idiots. Get together with your friends who believe the way you do. Get your act together. Think of what you want from the media. Ask for a meeting uh, and sit down and talk with them and tell them what's at stake for you and ask them if they can't do a better job. And tell them that you respect the job they're doing in the community uh, and it's valuable, but they could do better uh, if, if they would pay attention to what's really important. Uh, that's a start. Thank you, Gary Gilson.